Keeping up with the Joneses. Welcome to episode 203 of Keeping Up with the Joneses, the weekly podcast with new episodes every Monday. Mrs. Jones. Yes. What has happened since the last time we sat down to record a podcast? Goodness, so much has happened. It feels like it's been two or three weeks. It's one week, seven days, baby. <laughs> it was re- one really long, really full, but great week. Mm-hmm. Well, last week, uh, on Monday and Tuesday, not even quite a week yet at the recording of this podcast, uh, Steve Long was in town and teaching on the school, wasn't he? Yeah, our friend Steve, we actually did a podcast interview with him last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can uh, visit our website and just as the episode before the one you're listening to right now. Yes. Steve was in teaching on physical healing. He, yeah. He's an amazing teacher. He really is. He really practices demonstration and explanation at the same time, which I love. Yeah. There's something about all these uh, previously Baptist people, their ability to teach something is is remarkable, isn't it? Baptists make great charismatics, let they me tell you. They do. They do. Uh, and then on year two, last week, you and I were teaching on kingdom parenting. Which or- is what? Basically, what are you looking for in spiritual parents? How how do you uh, find that? All that kind of stuff. And then um, I I do some some stuff on what it's like to actually be allow yourself to be parented. What's crazy? Or reparented. I've never heard you teach because you're usually teaching. You know the way our schedule is set up. That's one of the teachings I've never heard you do, and I don't think you've ever heard me teach my part. So I hope. We're Teaching the same thing question? I, I did hear you teach oh, your you part this time, yeah. And so, was it good? It was good, baby. You're, yeah, okay, you're, you're so gifted. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also got to teach in second year one of my favorite sessions all about how to use a piece of software called Accordance, which yes. is our Bible study software. And the, I was so proud of our students. Usually there's a, a certain level of panic whenever you talk about technology. Um, but this year, everybody it seemed like everybody was gung-ho, which was amazing. And then what was extra fun for me was this week, I got to teach on our third year. Have we announced that we have a third year of School of Supernatural Life? I don't know if we have on the podcast, but now we have three years. We're piloting year three this year. And so I got to teach our students who are beta testing year three for us all about the hero triangle, The which is, I just love that. Teaching about interpersonal communication using the Cartman drama triangle and and how to get out of conflict and how to stop being passive and become powerful anyway it it was so good all of that as good as that week was Mm -hmm. was vastly overshadowed by the awesomeness of our heaven declares conference that we just finished last night it really was was such a great conference i i loved even before the conference began like friday night we like to get there earlier just to kind of wander around and greet people and meet as many people as we can lots of visitors from out of state um we i got to meet a lovely couple from indiana indiana's a state Right. It, Indiana yep. is a state, yes. Um, some people from St. <laughs> Louis, some people from, basically all over, including a contingent of wonderful listeners to this podcast show who'd come down for the conference from Alaska. Yes, and they came bearing gifts, didn't they? They did. Explain to me what it was, because as soon as we walked in the church, somebody said, there's a basket of frozen meat for you, which is <laughs> great news to me. As, uh, you know, if anybody offers me like frozen meat, I'm excited. Right. But this is meat I don't think I've ever eaten before. Well, it's... Uh, well, I mean, it was freshly killed uh, moose meat and caribou meat that had been made into different kinds of sausages. So apparently the caribou sausage has jalapenos and cheese in it. 
and it's quite spicy, which I was like, oh, that's going to be good. Meat, cheese, and spice. That's all three food groups. And then for me, they brought me coffee. Mm. So I get both meat and coffee. You could have coffee, but you refuse to be enlightened. In addition to that, our friends and podcast listeners from Scotland and England, we met them and they brought with them care packages, which you know nothing about, and now no longer exist. So Wait, let's move on. You didn't actually eat the chocolate, did you? All in all, the conference was Jones, amazing. I was supposed to get some of it. <laughs> You got coffee, so it just all works itself Oh, out. dear. Okay. But seriously, the conference was amazing. It really was. Our dear friend David Wagner was sharing at the conference, and it's never a dull moment when David's in the house. No. And uh, Jack Deere, who you're going to hear from in a second, was also sharing at the conference. Uh, and then worship. Oh, my gosh. Well done, Grace and our worship team. It, it was just beautiful. If you weren't at the conference, or even if you were at the conference and you want recordings of all of the teaching, the MP3s for the conference should be up at our website by the time you listen to this. And by our website, I mean Grace and our website. I'll put a link to it in our show notes if you're interested in that. Um but yeah, a, a great time. Any highlights from the conference for you, babe? I think I was, I mean, yes, tons of highlights, but I think I was super struck by here you have two men, both with incredible testimonies of brokenness and trauma, and they're standing up there and they're still talking about how how much they love God and how loved by God they feel and, and uh I think it there's just a lot of hope in that. Like no matter what you've been through or what you've survived when you hear these those kind of testimonies. Right. Yeah. So, but I mean, uh it was also really fun on the final night of the conference. Um the Holy Spirit just really broke out in a in a way that felt super familiar to me in that it felt so much like Toronto in 94. Uh and so it was it was chaos, but it was wonderful, and God was doing all kinds of stuff, and we got home really, really late at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're a little tired, but super happy, and I just think the Lord did some amazing things this weekend that we're going to keep hearing about, like the ripple effect is going to keep mm-hmm. going. Thank you to everybody who came to the conference. I-, I trust that you had an amazing time in the presence of God, too, and we're thrilled that you came. We announced our new uh, spring conference that's happening, our, our source conference, which uh, will be happening. I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. I, I mentioned that our speakers this weekend, David Wagner and Jack Deere. David's been on the podcast before. He has an amazing story, as you just mentioned, babe. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, similar to your story, similar to Jack's story, and that you're listening to it and you're thinking, how can one person have endured this much trauma in their life. It's episode 86. If you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to listen to it after this episode. Um, so we love having David. David's just a, a dear friend and, and a wonderful minister. It was our second time having Jack at the conference, and we just could not pass up the opportunity to ask him if he'd come on the show and, and, and be interviewed. And we were thrilled that he'd said yes. Long-time listeners of the show will know that Jack's book have had a huge impact on my life. I was raised, for those of you who don't know my story, in a very conservative evangelical uh, church. I grew up with first-generation Christian parents. We loved the gospel of Jesus, but knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. And I meet the Holy Spirit shortly after my 21st birthday, in my my early 20s. had no grid for what happened when I met the Holy Spirit. And I started reading one of his books called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, which really helped me understand the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And then later on in my journey into the prophetic and learning to hear God's voice, I was greatly assisted along that path by one of Jack's other books called Surprised by the Voice of God. They're two of my most recommended books. It's they're, they're books I suggest every believer reads, especially if you've come from a conservative evangelical background and some of the charismatic stuff that we talk about is interest to you, but but maybe it's not your experience. Highly recommend you reading those books. So on Friday afternoon, Jack came over to the house and sat down with us and we talked about his new book and what he learned about pain and friendship with God. And this is what came out of that. AJ Jones. Hello. Ask me how excited I am. How excited are you? I am very excited because I have one of my personal heroes in the studio with us today. I know, right? Dr. Jack Deere. Look at you. You're in Franklin, Tennessee with the Joneses. We're so excited to have you on the show. Me too, Alan. I feel like I could speak to you all day. There's so many stories I want to hear. There's so many questions. We could wander through modern day church history. You've been involved with the Vineyard, with the Kansas City Prophets, you know, all of your books that you've written. The little nerd in me just wants to sit and go, tell me this story. Hey, what about that? But you've written this brand new book. I've just finished reading it this week. It was a hard book to read because the the subject matter is not light and frothy. If it was sad to read, I can only imagine how hard it was to write, harder yet to live. Talk to me about the process of this book and why would you volunteer for all of this transparency? So the uh, title of the book is Even in Our Darkness. And uh, after my son died, that, that's a pivotal event in our life, my second-born son got on drugs when he was 13, and at 22, he took his life. It was on mm. December 27th, 2000, and he uh, shot himself in his head with a 44 Magnum, a gun that we used to scare bears away from our house in Montana on top of a mountain. And I, found, I was the one to find him that morning, and, and my wife and I, his brother and sister, we gathered around his body. I held his head in my hands, and, and I prayed for God to bring him back to life. Mm. And we said, we're going to pray until God brings him back to life or the police come and make us leave. And after about 30 minutes, the police came and made us leave. That plunged us into the darkest, most unforgiving world. Until that morning, I had a great story for my life. I was meant to write books, speak in churches, uh, help people grow in their relationship with uh, God. But after I found my son, I had nothing to say. I mean, I thought he was going to be beside me in ministry. I thought he was going to get out of drugs. So I lost my story for for a living. I couldn't write. I, I tried to write, but they, it just came out as these lifeless cliches. My wife went down a trail of opioids and alcohol mm. and uh, ended up in rehab and actually ended up in four rehabs. So I thought I was going to lose her. And so our, our life just sort of disintegrated. I couldn't write. Oh, and then I tried to, uh, about four years after I lost my son, I tried to plant a church. That's the word I use, plant. <laughs> what I did was I took over a dying church of about 250 people, and I thought, you know, in my past, every every ministry I've touched has grown, and so I just assumed that would happen with this right. with this church, and it didn't happen. For the first time in my life, I couldn't grow a church, I couldn't write. And I couldn't get my wife sober. I thought it was my responsibility to get my wife uh, sober. So we just went into a, a, a disintegrated life. And I, and for a long time, it was hard to find a story for a living. It was hard to find a reason for uh, getting out of bed. And I ended up going to rehab for anger. It was in her second rehab. I, I went uh, went there just to, for family week. 
And it turned out that the counselors said, you're a really angry person. And I ended up going into rehab there, and it was a life-changing experience. I wrote a chapter about it in the uh, book. Anyway, I came out of that uh, uh, rehab, and for the first time in six years, I was able to write. Whoa. And I started uh, writing the opening chapter of this book, and the words just began to flow uh, out of me. And I, I decided I want, uh, what I want to write is a book about friendship with God. But I don't want to write it as though this is an easy thing. Or, um, I mean, I want to really tell the truth about our life. I want to talk about our the, the sins in our life, the sins in our marriage. It, instead of standing on a stage and pretending that, you, you know, we came out of this pretty well, pretty unscathed, and we have this great faith and all that. And, and a lot of times that's what we preachers do. We stand on a stage and we present a version of the Christian life that doesn't exist anywhere. But the people listening to us, they don't know that. So what they think is, this guy's living the normal Christian life, and they're the failures. And, and so what we what we teach them to do is to go underground with their sin. And, and they don't tell anybody about what they're struggling with because they think their life is abnormal. So right. I wanted to write a book that was different with all of our struggles, an unsanitized version of the Christian life, but integrate that in with how God uses all of that, the pains, everything, uh, to produce a friendship with him, which I think is the goal of life. It's being friends with God, feeling his affection, enjoying him, mm. and living out of living out of pleasure as opposed to enduring uh, God and living out of obligation. I got so many questions out of that, that, that one <laughs> response. So let me ask you a couple of questions. You so casually mentioned, yeah, so, you know, I, I went to therapy, I went to group therapy. I know a little bit about your story. Well, you tell a lot about your story in this book. But, you know, you are, I mean, we'll chuckle about this, but, you know, you are a, a once upon a time, a dignified professor. You were taught to disdain emotion, pay no yep. attention to that. You know, it's just a flash. It's a distraction. You know, that's the word, the word, the word, the truth. What motivated you to go to group? And did you have any internal struggles with that? Any objections? Was there, was pride knocking at your door? Or were you at such a point of desperation that you will, you'll try anything? Or Well, prior, you know, prior to actually going into a group therapy, I used to make fun of it. I right. thought, look, all you really need is the word. You, you need to have some Christian friends and, and you study the word, uh, you pray and you just, you, you got a group and you do together, you do what the word uh, says. And it's like weak people go to uh, counseling or weak people go to uh, group therapy. And I'm not a weak person. I'm a strong person. I'm disciplined. And, and in, at Dallas, we sort of disdained uh, feelings. When I was a uh, second year student, one of my professors said at the beginning of class, liberals feel, we think. And the whole class erupted in applause and laughter. <laughs> the message was really clear. Feelings are bad. Mind is good. And that was just platonic theology. That's all, right. all, all that was. God, God didn't make us just minds. He, he made us with hearts, with, with feeling. And, and we're, we're supposed to be in touch with pleasure and, and, and all that. So, I mean, I, I ended up going into a, a group therapy session sort of against my will. I, I went up for family week with my wife. And uh, my anger was off the charts, but I didn't believe I was angry. I just believed I wanted to do things right. So denial was pretty strong. Yeah, and, and somebody, you know, prior to that, I mean, all my life, people have said, Jack, that's so harsh. And I go, it's not harsh. I just want things to be done right. Right. I care. Fast, yeah. I care. That was kind of, that was the way <laughs> I, I sort of processed all those things. And, and because I'm a theologian and, and conversant with Scripture and theology, I could, I could justify it. 
yeah, I got a pass on mo- most of the really bad behavior in the church. And as a result, I got this string of bad relationships behind me of hurt people. But I just say, well, those are just oversensitive people. You know, they're, they don't, they don't care like I care. So I go to the, this therapy program for my wife. I'm doing it for my wife. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing a therapist does is he says, do you always interact like that? And I said, what are you talking about? And he says, just like that, your volume, the, your face, uh, the tone, you're angry. And I go, I'm not angry. And he goes, there you are. You are. You are. Is this, how you, is this how you interact with your wife? And on the inside, I was really furious because he was suggesting <laughs> that I was part of my wife's problem. Right. I was her savior. Not, I wasn't part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that's putting up with all this drinking stuff and trying to rescue her. I haven't left her. Uh, and and uh, I couldn't see that I was treating her like a child and expecting her to make a decisions like an adult i did not know that i did not have power over her drinking in fact i did not know i was powerless over life right uh without me you can you can do nothing well i had an interpretation that sort of protected me from what he really meant so at the end of that week they they uh the 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 people in charge of lisa's therapy constructed a therapy session where she was able to confront me with what my anger had done to her and after listening to her uh, tell some of the stories in, in, in front of the whole group, front of her therapy group, what I'd done to her, I felt so sad because now hearing that and hearing it with an audience, thinking, how could I have been that insensitive? That was the thing that sort of broke me and made me decide I want to go into their therapy program. They, they had a therapy program called Survivors One, and it dealt with the trauma that happens to you uh, at from birth till you're 17, and then they connect that traumatic uh, that that the, all the trauma that was done to you, they connect it with the adult dysfunctions in your life, and then they have a way of helping you get over those dysfunctions. And was that the first time you were able to draw the parallel be- between those two things, or did you had hints of that in your adult life? No, I didn't have any hints of it. My, I mean, I come out of of. Uh, a traumatic life. My mom and dad were at war from the time I was about five or six. Um, my dad killed himself when I was 12 years old and left a 34-year-old widow with a 10th grade education to care for four kids. I was the oldest at 12. And then and then our whole home goes south. I, I, there's this parade of men in our home. Uh, I see things a child should never, ever see. My, my brothers and sister did do things you should never, ever see. In your home. I was permitted to drink in our home from the time I was 13, mix drinks for mom and her boyfriends, and then drink at the bar uh, with them. I just heard and saw stuff that was so defiling, but I just thought, well, this is just life. I, You know, you're a child. so you, when with, you don't know. Yeah, you don't know that's abuse. Yeah. And, and, and my parents not only had no Christian friends, they had no friends at all. Sure. So sick homes don't have friends. They have secrets. And so mm-hmm. all this stuff stays inside, and there's no way for you to get any... Uh, uh, for you to get any help. So I grew up with all that. I become a Christian at 17, hear the gospel for the first time. Jesus died on the cross for me in my place. If I would trust him to forgive me and give me a new life, he will come into my heart. I hear that on December 18th, 1965, and I trust him and I'm born again. Second verse of scripture I memorized was 2 Corinthians 5:17. If any man be in Christ, uh, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Uh, he's a new creature. So I go, <laughs> that passed Done and dusted. It just yeah, magically just, disappears, just all that pain. On. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So I got theology to back that up. He's, that's what he said. Old things sure. are passed away. And so if a person, let, let's say I'm 19, 20, 22, person asks me about my life, 
about my childhood, I say, I, it was mostly just gray, kind of boring. Mm-hmm. That's literally the way I would describe it. No just, need for any pop psychology. Yeah. We're good. We're, let's move on. Yeah. So, so my uh, best friend in college asked me, uh, what, did your dad, what does your dad do? I said, oh, he killed himself when I was 12. And my best friend said, oh, it must have been awful. And I go, oh, it was kind of hard on us. I mean, we, mom couldn't, couldn't pay the bills all the time. We almost lost our house twice, but it, that was all. You'll know this just because of the process you've been through in, in recovery, but the amount of dissociation a child needs to go through to survive yeah. the trauma you experienced, you literally separate from yourself. Yeah. And you just, you know, recompartmentalize and move on. And, you know, in your book, you talk about how, in one sense, you, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. You find a savior in that you find a system that lets you uh, find an identity. Yeah. You find theology, you find your previously, I mean, I don't want to insult you, but you're, by your own words, you didn't academically excel until you discover passion for languages. And then, are you kidding me? You're off the charts in terms of academic success. You're in a system that rewards performance. And it sounds like that's good medication to keep you know, all of that pain away. Yeah, and, and it was, and it was really heady. So at 17, I don't know a single verse of Scripture. Um, I don't know God. At 27, I'm a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages at Dallas Seminary. I mean, that's that's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I can walk into a classroom at 27 and I can teach Hebrew or Greek without notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something. It, it, it wasn't just I was good at it. I absolutely loved it, mm-hmm. breathed it, and uh, and so that success was sort of overwhelming, and it just kind of covered the, the past just the pain yeah 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 just numbed all of that and and then i started church that becomes wildly successful and the aristocracy of my city are going to it and my friends are 10 years older they're the ceos of companies i'm riding on private jets going to these great ranches and and uh and, and so all that pain is just this distant distant memory just a little echo away but just yeah. doesn't vanish it's still there and is going to eke out. I have a friend who describes it as, you know, a lot of times with our emotional pain, it's like keeping beach balls suppressed underwater. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can do, but the more pain you have, the more balls you have to manage. And then yeah. one day somebody says something to you and thump, this beach ball flies up, hits them in the face. And, and they're like, what's that? And you're like, well, it's just you're oversensitive. Yeah. <laughs> and you live a life of justification of of separating yourself from your pain and the pain you cause. Yeah, some, somebody asked me the other day, they go, how would you describe your story? Now, I would never have said this you know, 20 years ago, but today, here, here's how I would describe my story. I'm the kind of guy who finds all these really creative ways to leave God without, without it looking like I've left God. Wow. And then he finds all these creative ways to bring me back. Yeah. And at the time, I don't even know I'm, I'm doing that. Of course you don't. So I, I give you an example. In the 1990s, I'm living in Whitefish, Montana, one of the most beautiful spots in the world. We live on a mountain. Um, at 95, I started investing in stocks. And, uh, and and this was when the tech stocks were just going sure. off the, the, the chart. And and so my best friend and I started investing in, in stocks. And on some days, I'm, I put all of our savings in stocks. And on some days, I'm making more money in one day than I made on an annual salary before. And so by the, uh, by the spring of 2000, I figure I've got four or five months to go, and then I'll have enough money, if this stuff just keeps on going the way it's going, to uh, cash out and never have to work another day in my life. Right. But in order to do that, I've been doing this for five years now. It, and so I've been paying more attention to the stock market. I've been reading more about financial stuff than I'm reading my Bible, that uh, I'm really thinking about God. I mean, the, what's firing me up is not God. What's firing me up is everything I'm learning in this, 
in the stock market. And uh, I'm, I'm still write, I'm writing a book. I wrote that Surprised by the Voice of God in 96. Uh, I'm still traveling around the world, actually, speaking at conferences and, and all, all that stuff. I'm not going to church anymore. My best friend and I aren't going to church. We're investing in the market. And, 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 and so God's still there, but he's kind of like, I've got him off to a corner. What's really exciting is making money in the market. And then 2000, uh, December 27th comes, and I lose my son, and, and all of a sudden, money is not important anymore. Mm. Uh, n- nothing is important. You can always get money back, but you can't get a son back. And, and I end up uh, losing all that money. Okay, so here's an example of God bringing me back. Um, and I didn't know I needed to be brought back. So two weeks after we lose my a son we're we're in fort worth we we wouldn't spend another night in our house in montana we took his body went back to fort worth his birthplace and my birthplace and we live with our best friends and they have a huge huge home and 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 so we were in their home two weeks after his funeral the bill for the funeral comes and it's ten thousand sixty four dollars and sixty nine cents and the funeral company wants their money today. They couldn't find us for two weeks. They didn't know where we were living. And no problem, because I still have a lot of money in the bank account. I've lost more than half of my money because the tech stocks collapsed, but I still have money to pay the bill. 30 minutes after I get that funeral bill, my secretary walks in with a sack full of mail, and I know what it is, sympathy cards. So I empty the cards on the desk, 38 cards, and out of those 38 cards, 22 checks fall. One check for each year of Scott's life. He was 22 when he killed himself. The uh-huh. funeral bill was $10,064.69. I total up the checks, and they're $10,065. Wow. I am sitting there. My heart is about to explode. And I'm saying, not thank you. I'm saying, why? Why, God? I mean, I knew that was God speaking to me. I mean, that, that's that's not a coincidence. Sure. That is God speaking to me. And I'm saying, why? What does this mean? And, and I just sat there with my heart thumping, and then I hear these three sentences. I paid for his death. I paid for his life, and I'll pay for everything you need the rest of your life. Mm. And I just began to weep. I had spent the last five years ignoring God for money, and it was like God said, okay, if money's important to you, I'll win your heart back with money. Uh, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I found this way to leave him, not really thinking I'd left him, and he finds a more creative way to bring me back to him. The kindness wow. of God that leads us to repentance, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. He wearies us with that, that, kindness. Exactly. That's exactly That's what beautiful. it is. beautiful. There was a story I read in your book about uh, you ministering to a young man. It was that first time I went back to church. Tell us that story. Okay. So eight weeks after we lost my son, I, haven't gone, I hadn't gone to church. I hadn't laid my hands on a single person and prayed for them. And I get uh, this church from Amarillo. It's got about 5,000 people. I go there every month, speak. I'm in, I go to their elder meetings once a month. I, go, I speak in all their retreats. We've been, I've been great friends with them for like three years. So they call eight weeks after we've lost Scott, and they say, all the senior pastors are going to be gone this next Sunday. We have a, a famous guest speaker coming in. Could you come and MC? the services for the weekend. You'll only be gone 24 hours, two services Saturday night, 
two services Sunday morning. You get, you get back on a plane, and, and you'll only be away from Lisa for 24 hours. Lisa says, honey, go. I've got Stephen and Elise here to take care of me. That church has been so good to us. They're in Amarillo, Texas, uh, up in the Panhandle, and we're back in Fort Worth at this time. So I get on plane, and I'm emceeing the first sun, Saturday afternoon service. It's over, and I'm standing down at the front, and we got maybe 70 people on the prayer team that are praying for people uh, afterwards, but I'm not praying for anybody. And I look over to my right, and I see this blonde lady leading a person. And I can't tell if the person is a man or a woman, a boy or girl, because the person has no face. And it's, and then all of a sudden, she's walking straight to me. So I'm by myself. I'm not praying for anybody. Right. And she comes up and introduces herself. She says, hi, I'm Michelle. This is my son, Aaron. Six months ago, Aaron was so distraught that he put a shotgun under his chin and pulled the trigger. It blew his face away, but he survived it. It's taken multiple surgeries to get him to this point. And here's what this point meant. When I looked at him, where there should have been eyes, there were just these slits that were sewn shut. You couldn't even tell there were eyes there. Mm. And this this squiggle in the middle of his face that was once a nose, I mean, you, it was unrecognizable. And then this misshapen hole was the mouth. And out of the throat was a permanent tracheotomy tube. Mm. Uh, it was just... It, he was so disfigured. He he didn't he didn't you just you couldn't recognize what he was, and so she says, "Aaron doesn't yet believe in God, but he came up here because I asked him to. Would you pray for him?" This is my first time to be in church after losing my Good son. Night. I had not laid these hands on anyone and prayed for them uh, since the la- the last person I prayed for. I held my son's head, his shattered head, in my hands and. And prayed for him. And now she brings a boy who tried to blow himself away mm. with a shotgun. Says, would you pray for him? So uh, I looked at Aaron and I said, Aaron, my name's Jack. Would you like me to pray for you? And he puts his finger over the trach tube so the air will go up through his vocal folds. And he says, yes. So I put one hand on his back and I put the other hand on my, I put my left hand on his heart. And as soon as my left hand touches his heart, I feel power come down the back of my neck. It ripples all down my back, down the back of my legs. And I don't even have to think about what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm on automatic pilot. And I said, Aaron, my son pulled the trigger at Christmas, but he didn't make it. God has spared you because he has purposes for your life if you want to fulfill them. And then Michelle began to sob, and, and she said, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. I, I didn't know you were the son, the minister whose son, who, 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 I'm just so sorry. I never would have brought him here if I'd known. And I said, Michelle, don't cry. This is a divine appointment. God has made this. You've done exactly what you're supposed to do. I'm glad to be here right now. I'm glad to be with you and Aaron. And then I finished the prayer for Aaron. And then I turned to her and prayed for her and had exactly the same experience uh, happen. It's just this prayer from heaven that comes down. And I watched them walk away. And, and I just I looked up to heaven at God. And I said, you are amazing. Nobody is like you. Nobody writes stories like this. I mean, I knew what he was doing, that, mm. uh, that he was speaking to me in that. He, he didn't take an ounce of the pain away. What he did was he came down into the pain, and it was like he said, I'm here with you. Yeah, All of on. this has a purpose, and you stay with me, and I'm going to give you power to help the hopeless. I'm going to give you 
a new story. Um, it was just, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And that's what we found God doing in those days, not coming into the pain, but not taking it away. We still had to feel every bit of it and still had to uh, walk through it. And about, and I wrote all this down, wrote their last name down. And then about five years later, someone said they were on uh, Oprah. And so I looked at Oprah shows online. I, looked, I, I couldn't find them. And just before uh, I finished this book, I found them. Oh. And uh, Aaron has become a believer. Oh, That's come on. So no, he is talking to churches. His face looks so much better now. He's had many more uh, surgeries. They live in Austin, Texas. Uh, That's wonderful. Yeah, no, it's like, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's like, God, you're amazing. I mean, you're yeah. just amazing. absolutely amazing. And we had those kind of experiences. Those, I was, that was the most dramatic, I think. But we had those kind of experiences over and over. And, and people told us in those first weeks, and they meant to be kind, uh, but they said, uh, you'll never recover from this. And what they were trying to say, they were trying to tell us that they understood this was the worst pain a person could ever go through. But saying you'll never get over this was, I mean, I flinched when I heard that. I, I didn't want to believe that that one reckless act of my son would emotionally maim us for the rest of our lives. So about 10 years after he dies, 10, maybe 11 years, it's his anniversary of his death, uh, which uh, December 27th. I'm sitting there, and I'm writing an update uh, to people. Lisa's recovering from the, the strokes that she had in t- that she had in the hospital, and this was 2013, probably. And I'm watching her, and she's not. Uh, she's watching TV. She's oblivious, and I'm thinking, I don't feel any pain. Uh, it's his anniversary, and then I'm thinking, when's the last time you felt any pain? And I can't remember the last time I felt any pain. Mm. And it's like all the sting of Scott is gone, and nothing but the sweetness remains. Uh, the sweetness of his life with us and then the sweetness of the reunion that I'm looking forward to. And I thought, I've been healed. And I couldn't tell you the time. I couldn't tell you the how it happened. Uh, but Lisa will tell you the same thing today, that we are completely Beautiful. healed. And people ask us to talk about his death, and they say, I don't want to bring anything up. And I go, I have not lost a single detail of his death. I remember every single thing. But there's just no pain with it. There's no sting with it. God really has redeemed our pain. Because you went through the pain. Yeah. You didn't try to avoid it. Yeah. Which requires incredible bravery. I think one of the saddest things for me about reading your book, and it's an incredible book for a number of reasons, not least the, the levels of transparency and vulnerability that's uncommon, especially for Christian leaders to go through. The thing I think that made me sad was the loneliness I felt with you going through the book and the loneliness that you must have experienced as a child, as a young adult growing up, and never really knowing it. Yeah. What was it like going through the awakening to the loneliness, the sadness, the... Emotions. Yeah, the emotions, or the emotional realization that, ah, these people that I love have actually been distancing them by my own best efforts or by my own ignorance. You know, listen to your wife explain, these are the ways you hurt me, how did your heart respond to that? Was there any defense mechanism that kicked in, or by this point were you just beaten black and blue? No, I think the worst thing for me was hearing from my wife when when she got in a safe environment and was protecting by those counselors. Because the the one thing that's that's true of me, I love my wife. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fell in love with her the day I saw her, and when she spoke, I heard that sweet, gentle voice 
I was done for. I mean, uh, I, I kept cautioning myself saying, Hey, this is love at first sight. This can't be true. Be careful. And it, uh, my mind kept hurling warnings at m- my heart, but I've always loved her and always thought she was unique and one of the best persons, one of the most spiritual persons I've ever known. Uh, but I've been unkind and I've been angry with her, not meaning to be. Uh, and then to hear in front of that group where where she took a list of things that covered a period of years and read them out loud to me, it, that was I think that was a pivotal point mm. in my life. I mean, that had been some other guy. I would have said, that's the biggest jerk in the world. Wow. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't have countenanced that in someone else. In, but thinking how sweet she is and how could I be that insensitive, that was probably the turning point that that made me soft enough to, to be willing to start taking a look at that. And the other thing I was doing by, uh, by this time, I was starting to pursue God to, to become friends with him as opposed to being a good servant, right? you know, and as opposed to doing things that would help me have a better life. I, I was pursuing him in order to make my ultimate pleasure in him, to feel his affection for me. So those two things together, her, her actually showing me how I had hurt her, and then pursuing God on the other hand, it's like opened up a door for him to begin to speak to me about that whole area of pain and loneliness that I had harbored in my life for so long. I'm curious about... I think I know the answer to this, but I'll be interested in your perspective. I'm curious, partly because of the culture we live in. AJ and I live in Grace Center. We have an amazing church culture that places a high value on two things, one honor and one confrontation. So we live in an environment where as staff, as leaders, as people in our community, we can't go too far without being confronted. And what confrontation would be like, hey, Jack, can I? Can I just have a second with you? Can I tell you how I experienced you this morning? We had the interchange. Man, you felt really angry. And like, can I talk to you about that? And so there's a high value on receiving feedback. And I know some of the people that you've walked with, some really powerful people. Did nobody in your life ever confront you about these things? Or like your anger or your pride, your unteachable spirit? No, Nobody ever say, hey, Jack, can I? Hey, that felt really harsh. Did anybody speak to you, or was everybody just enamored with your gift and backed away? I think I got a lot of passes, but when it did happen, it, it was like I you know, said, it was like, I'm not angry. You're just oversensitive. You're not really listening. And then Wimber and I had some knockdown dragouts behind the scenes, never right. never in front of people. And Wimber is not afraid to uh, confront, uh, but that, but even there, you know, I fought. Uh, Somebody as powerful as Wimper. He's one of the most powerful people sure. I've ever known. And do you think that was just from your own wounds with with a father? Or like, why didn't you listen to a father like John? And that is a great question because he was a great father. And and uh, uh, you know, I've had two great spiritual fathers. I had three academic fathers, but John was a great spiritual father. And then, and part of me, my heart was so tender toward him. But there was another part that was really uh, defensive. I, I remember one night uh, I was debating a, a, a very, very well-known, prominent theologian in front of 500 of his students. Uh, basically, most of the seminary had turned out for the debate. And so John and Lisa and I drove together, and John was in the audience. And this guy assumed, this this professor assumed that I was like typical charismatic, that I believed everybody could be healed if you had enough faith, and that everybody should speak in tongues because this is the key to the spiritual life. 
and so he was shocked when I didn't believe those things. He's right. a little bit derailed because he, because the arguments he came loaded for, he can't use now because sure. I'm already saying no, I don't believe that stuff. And then he made a critical error, biblical, critical biblical error. And uh, I thought about it for a second, and I thought I could with him. I could go for the jugular vein, or I could win a friend. And probably two or three years before that, I wouldn't have been able to pass it up. But I watched John answer questions so many times, and he never got hooked in the anger of his opponent. He was always kind to every uh, every, every person. I just I would be furious sometimes, but I watch his kindness. And so I just thought, I'm going to win a friend, and, and I passed on it. And uh, after the debate, the, uh, the, the whole place erupted in applause. Everybody was happy with it. It was mm-hmm. like both sides won. And the professor asked me to come to his class to lecture to his doctoral students, his master's students, and I did that for a number of months afterwards. Well, anyway, we're riding home in the car, and uh, John says, You were great tonight, Jack. He said, I'm so proud of you. You were kind. Mm. Wow. And I fought back the tears because I was being like my father. I was like, that's really what I want to do. So he was really a great spiritual father. And there was a part of me that could respond to him like that and want to be like him. And there was this other unhealed defensive part that, like, I'm going to stand my ground here and get angry. And There's lots of stuff in your book that is really sad. The bit about John and you... And the fact that you you two split for four years, that was a bit... I, I cried out loud when I read that. It, there was something about that, the grief, the sorrow of this incredible connection between these two people and the brokenness of never being fathered or not knowing how it would be a son or not knowing how to parent. I was just like, that is a tragedy. And, and the day that you went to repent to him... That so moved me to tears. What what was it that, yeah. that got you there? Yeah. See, John's father left on the night he was born. So he he's like me. He grew up without a father. He he grew up with serious father wounds, and he grew up poor. And uh, and then the church mistreated him when he went to work for the church. I mean, he didn't have money to get his kids' teeth fixed and that sort of thing. So he had he had significant anger issues and he could be really cranky mm-hmm. with the staff. Never cranky. Cranky, that's the word you use, not critical. Yeah, never cranky with a you know with a with an adversary in in public, but behind the scenes, he was like me. He carried a significant amount of unhealed uh, anger and he and I never clashed in in public. It was it was in front of our wives uh behind the scenes. I mean, the only spectators this would have been our wives and sometimes it was just it was just uh me and him, and, and both of us, I think it was because of the unhealed anger in our life. So we split up, and, and I was, uh, about three years after we split up, I was in my on top of my mountain in Montana, and I was praying, and I see this uh, vision of me being unnecessarily provocative to John. And I just say, Lord, was I really like that? And that over the next few days, I saw this stream of really ugly scenes pop up where I was being un- ungrateful, unnecessarily provocative to uh, to John. And so I called him and I said, John, I'm going to be in, uh, in in Southern California in a, in a week or two. Is it okay if I come by and see you? He goes, I'd love to see you, Jack. Uh, Carol opens the door and takes me uh, into the kitchen to see John. And he's in a wheelchair. Oh, He's had a stroke a heart attack, and had cancer, and he's confined to a wheelchair probably for the rest of his life. 
And he's got a bucket in the wheelchair for this unpredictable nausea where he'll just throw up without, uh, without any notice. And his cheeks are kind of a little bit hollowed out and mm. the sun's shining on him. But he's got that same jovial expression uh, that, that, that he has where he looks like he's about to crack a joke. And I said, John, uh, you know, we haven't spoken for uh, three years, uh, but uh, neither of us has said a bad word about the other. And he looks up at me and he smiles and he says, yeah, Jack, we've been very disciplined in our bitterness, haven't we? And, <laughs> it's, and, and I, I just broke my heart. I mean, nobody could use humor and go to the heart of an issue like John could. Right. And, and he's just confessing for both of us. And so I just start pouring out my heart and saying, John, I've been supremely un- ungrateful. I-, I unnecessarily provoked you. There are a thousand young men that would have given their right hands to mm-hmm. be your right hand, and you chose me. And I-, I just came here to ask you to forgive me, not just for the way I left, but for ending our friendship. And he said, yeah, Jack, but I hurt. And, and I raised my hand and I stopped him. And I said, D- I don't want to hear it, John. Uh, you would never have hurt me had I been a grateful son. And that was as far as I got before I fell at his feet and started crying. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, I forgive you, Jack. And then we stayed together for a little longer. And I walked out of the house and I felt lighter. I felt like something left me. And I think some dark power did leave me uh, mm-hmm. that day because of the uh, the anger, the unforgiveness I uh, and the ingratitude. Well, it's the foothold, isn't it? Yeah, it was a foothold. We, exactly. we give the enemy a foothold yeah. and we're warned not to do that. And it's... The very things like bitterness and rage and malice and unforgiveness and yeah. And a month later, we were on a TV program together, and and uh, and a week after that, he was dead. Oh. It, uh, and I, I went to Anaheim for the funeral, and they asked me to write a tribute. And I sat up in the hotel room trying to write a tr- tribute, and I just started bawling, and I couldn't stop. My tears washed away the ink, and I just shook and sobbed and sobbed and wished I had another chance. I wished. You know, I just, I'm never going to see him again. I just, mm. how could I have wasted the last three years? It sounds like you had emotions, but probably not on your terms, as in it took an overwhelming amount of emotion to to get over the dam that you'd built up, either through crisis or sorrow or or, or pain, it would break through. Yeah. Were you comfortable with that, like weeping? Or uh, would yeah. you just dry yourself up and no, no, it? no, no. I was actually comfortable with that. I mean, it felt good. It felt like because you're getting rid of something that's been pent up inside you. It, it felt good, but I wasn't paying attention to what was really going on. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about my feelings in relationship to my friendship with, uh, with God. And and once I had a category for that and started praying every day to feel the affection of the Lord. Mm. I, I don't know if I cry every day, but I probably cry every other day, and, and, and especially in private with the Lord. And it feels so good. I mean, I can I feel His affection more than I've ever felt it now. And that's my basic message to the church, to pastors: is is uh, the number one thing in life is to feel His uh, affection. Um, when I make obedience the number one thing in my life, that's when I'm least obedient. But when I make feeling His affection, then things just seem to into place. If obedience is your goal, your outcome is either self-satisfied Phariseeism or deep disappointment because you're yeah, never right, going right. to be able to do it. The, the difficulty with connection is you have to be prepared to feel your own feelings before you can feel his. Yeah, yeah. And that, and we're, we're, we've been either trained out of that or reluctant to do it. 
Yeah, I think one one easy way, I'm totally on board with what you just said. I said, I think one really easy way to express it is when obedience becomes the number one thing in our life, we have two outcomes, uh, either depression or delusion. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Pharisees, they deluded themselves. Yeah. It's amazing that the tools, the very sophisticated tools we develop in early childhood to keep pain out, we discover later in life are the very walls that keep love out too. Yeah, too. True. It's it's the same area of your heart where you feel sadness and disappointment and shame and guilt. It's the same area where you feel love and gladness and connected and hope and Yeah, you can't love if you're not willing to feel pain. Because that, that love is taking a risk. And there's nobody you love that's not going to hurt you in a significant way. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking this morning that there's uh you know, there's people from all different uh, places in the world and all different kinds of church backgrounds that listen to our podcast. And uh, some of them may be like I was, like I, I got saved Baptist and I was telling you a bit of my story about, you know, when I, the first time I sort of encountered the Holy Spirit and, and ended up on the floor, I wasn't sure why I couldn't stand. I wasn't sure why I was laughing. And, and I didn't know how to make the leap or understand anything that was happening to me. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts or encouragements for people that might be in a place of, I want to connect with the person of the Holy Spirit, but I'm a little bit afraid about that because I've been told crazy stories or to be wary of him. Yeah, it makes sense. I think, you know, uh, people fear, number one, I mean, people fear that if I really get close to God, he's going to make me do something I don't want to do. Right. uh, So, or here's another common one you hear. Once you make up your mind, you're going hard after God, you paint a big bullseye on your back for the devil. Yeah. The devil is an equal opportunity hater, right? He doesn't <laughs> yes. wait for just, he, he looks for openings, not people that are going hard after God. I mean, the safest place in the world is the closest place to Jesus. Right. And that even includes a cross. Yeah. The thief on the cross next to Jesus will see him in heaven. Yeah. That was the safest place in the world to be. That was the, that was the one place if you wanted to get saved that day, that was the one place to be right next to the one who saves. So that that's a, a total lie, but you hear those kind of things, and the devil uses it, I think, to keep us from taking risk. And God really is going to offend your minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, that—that that is, He's just going to do that. So we learn to put his, our trust in Him, not in our intelligence. And and part of the ways He offends our minds, He He does things in ways we don't expect. Uh, I mean, I never expected to to believe in healing. I was a satisfied seminary professor and uh, you know i didn't i wasn't pursuing healing or anything like that and then there are physical manifestations that happen throughout the history of the whole history of scripture where the holy spirit does things to people like knocks them down on the ground i mean jesus stands up in john 18 and the people coming to take him prisoners say uh uh he says who are you seeking and they say jesus of nazareth and he says i am he Mm-hmm. And that's the Greek for ego a me. He, that's the name of God, I am. And when he says that, they all fall down on the ground. And, and John doesn't stop and explain it. He just right. has them all fall down on the ground. I mean, they're in the presence of the creator of the universe. And, and sometimes in his presence, we have physical manifestations. And, and yeah. all these things have happened throughout history. And they've happened in famous revivals like um, the Great Awakening in the 1730s. Generally speaking, people say Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theologian ever. He preached two-hour sermons in a high-pitched voice, long, intricately reasoned, 
And when the Great Awakening happened, people would writhe and fall down on the floor and scream. Some people were transported to heaven. Some people like had experiences of of hell. And, and there was no way that was emotionalism because he wasn't emotional. Right. That was the Holy Spirit pouring himself out, coming in a in a way that was offensive uh, to people. And right. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. Uh, the Boston minister said he he was a, a tool of Satan, and they said. You know, those signs, people falling on the floor and writhing. That's not, God's a God of order. That can't be God. And Jonathan Edwards, I'm paraphrasing him, but here was his argument. He said, when that guy fell on the floor, was writhing, then motionless for 24 hours, he was a God hater, he was a drunkard, and he was a wife beater. Mm -hmm. When he got up, he loved God, was in the church all the time, never laid a hand on his wife except in love, and never had another drink. He goes, that is not a work of the devil. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not maybe not the way we would have done the work. Right. But he said, but you don't look at the package in which the work comes. You look at the fruit. Yeah. If the fruit is good, then whether you're offended with the package or not is irrelevant. That's yeah. the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that's what I would say to people: you're, you're, you are God is going to offend our minds. I mean, He's offended mine, and He'll still do that. It's not like you get over this one time, and but, but He does it in order to say, what do you trust? Do you, do you trust your intellect or do you trust me? Right. Yeah, and in the end, he gets to be God, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and here's another good one for us pastors. He will take a pastor without a seminary education, maybe even with bad grammar, and give him a huge church. Yep. And so we guys sitting over here on the side are going, well, I don't know about that. That's That church deficient in this, deficient in that. And it's just jealousy. He's just, mm-hmm. he's a, it's a, an offense to our minds. Yep. Jack, the last question I have for you is, your book, Even in Our Darkness, it is an unusual book for the the reasons we've mentioned before, but perhaps most unusual is it's marked by graphic content in, in terms of the subject matter, but also there's some profanity in there. You don't shy away from talking about sex, masturbation, things that most Christian authors don't highlight. I'm interested to know, what was the what was the conversation like with your publisher when you sent your first draft? Because <laughs> when so, you speak, you, you're very courteous to your audience. You know, you'll often say blankety-blank when you're talking about cuss words. In the book, they're, they're just written out in print. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, so I didn't write this book for Christians. I wrote oh. it for people who don't know the Lord. And and so I, I don't want to sanitize it because pe- non-Christians will, will read a Christian book and they'll just toss it away or they won't sure. even get past the past prayer. It just it doesn't speak to their life. It's just it's so sanitized. It does it's not real. And so it feels the, fraudulent. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to write a book that an that an unbeliever, a, a non church goer, would pick up and not be able to put down for the beauty of the story. And mm-hmm. so that that's the reason that I wrote the, the uh, put what what you could call graphic. So I didn't think I was going to get a Christian publisher. So Zondervan uh, approached me and said, "We we we hear your writing. We want to we want to see the copies of it." So I go, "Okay, I'll show you what it's like." So, <laughs> Buckle up, Buttercup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I sent him uh, I, I sent him a copy of uh, of Even in Our Darkness of parts of it, and then I sent him a copy of a second book I'm writing, which has to do with the stuff I wrote while Lisa was going through his strokes, and and they uh, they wrote back and they said, "We love this. These are super powerful stories." You're a powerful writer, and we want to publish this. And I said, I'm not taking the profanity out. Uh, and they said, well, well no, so there's some Christian bookstores that will not even take a book if it has a single profane word in it. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not writing to the, the people that are offended like that, and I'm not writing to those bookstores. And, uh, and finally they said, 
we believe you. We we think the integrity of the story demands you tell it like it happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to suffer a little bit on the Christian audience, and but we want to we want to publish. So that wasn't easy for them. And we we fought over a few passages. I have one. Well, I'm not even going to. I have there's some passages in there with some sexual scenes that we kind of that I did tone down a little bit, but it's still right. Plenty in there, and and unbelievers are reading it and coming to the Lord, which is just beautiful. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's beautiful. amazing. Yeah, I beautiful. mean, uh, young young people, and then I, uh, there's a, a friend of mine gave it to his 90 year old, 91 year old father in law, who is an unbelieving uh, Episcopal, and he, he gave him a copy of the book. He's in assisted living. So my friend went back a couple days later and saw the book on the uh, table, and said, uh, "Hey, how'd you like that book?" And he and he said, "You know, I hate religious books." Uh, but I couldn't put that damn thing down. <laughs> could, could you get could you get me a couple more copies? I got some friends here. I want to give it to. So it's 90, 91 years That's old. That's awesome. You need that in the back of the dust jacket as you know your yeah. endorsement. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So we're fi- we're finding it's it's finding an audience in in all all ages, fourteen year olds, girls. Uh, so we're, I'm we're really thrilled with that. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link in the show note to the book. It's called Even in Our Darkness: A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. Thank you, Jack, for taking time out of your crazy schedule to be with us uh, this afternoon just to talk about the book, talk about your life. Thank you for being vulnerable, being willing to just walk in the light with an audience, some whom you'll never meet, to just bring transformation. We so appreciate it um, and so appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. It's been great for me. So that was fun. Yeah. Our regular listeners will know that we just started a 10-episode series that we were calling Back to the Basics, and obviously we departed this week from that in order to create space for Jack's interview. So we'll be back next week with our third installment of Back to the Basics, which is about the loving heart of God. I can't wait for that. It's going to be good. Please check the show notes for everything that we talked about this week. We put links to people, things we talk about, um, and you can get the show notes for any episode you listen to just by going to alanandaj.com. My name is spelled A-L-Y-N. So alanandaj.com slash 203 for this episode because it's 203. But any episode you want the show notes for, just put in the episode number after alanandaj.com. We're also giving away three copies of Jack's new book, signed by Jack himself, Simply Share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, ensuring that you tag us in your post, and we'll randomly pick three people to send a copy of the book to. Well, that's fun. Mm -hmm. Well, if you like this episode, we have more than 200 other episodes available at our website, alanandaj.com. I love how you always spell Alan. Should I spell AJ? Because sometimes they misspell it when I get coffee at Starbucks. They yeah. put A-J-A-Y and that's not. Do that's they not, really? Yeah. I'm like, it's two initials. It's not that hard. <laughs> um, com, And yeah, you can listen to all the previous ones. So thanks for listening. Subscribe to the show and we'll be back in your favorite podcast app next week. If you want to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Alan, again, A-L-Y-N. And I'm underscore AJ Jones. Have a fantastic week. Faith, life, communication, tacos and video games. Paleo donuts and the kindness of God are things we deal with every day. From Franklin, Tennessee, they are just like you and me. Keeping up with the Joneses, sharing their life.
Something here for everyone. 